Well, good morning, everyone. Really good to be with you today on this Pentecost Sunday. This is Pentecost, and uh, a day we celebrate the coming of God's Spirit to us. So it is a morning full of promise, and uh, it's a joy to be with you. I'm Dan Seitz. Uh, about six months ago, uh, I heard a story that I have not been able to get out of my mind. It was something that happened during last December's epic winter storm. And I don't know if you remember this, but back in December, huge storm uh, right around Christmas caused 20,000 flight cancellations. I hope uh, it did not affect your travel plans. But anyway, there's this group of 10 Korean tourists who are in a van and they are traveling from Washington, D.C. to the Northeast. And uh, some group, uh, some of the members of the group had been monitoring uh, the weather. There was a, a blizzard coming. Some of them had been feeling antsy about traveling, but never having experienced an East Coast blizzard or an East Bay spring, okay, it's pretty cold. Uh, they didn't know what to expect. And so they press on into the storm. Well, after making it to hard scrabble Buffalo, New York, uh, they get stuck and the snow is falling and the temperature is dropping and it's getting dark. And suddenly this group of tourists is in real trouble. Pretty dicey situation. They can freeze to death in that van. So anyway, two of the members of this group uh, very bravely head out into the snow to try to find some help. And they, uh, they just head for the nearest home that they can find. Now, if you have been keeping up with the news, uh, you know that this does not have to end well. Uh, seriously, because over the last few months, there have been stories, actually quite a few really tragic stories uh, about people getting shot for going up to the wrong house or the wrong car. Well, inside the house that they go to is a couple, Alex and Andrea Campagna. And because these two are lifelong Buffalo residents, uh, they're prepared. They've got a refrigerator stocked full of whatever you, you eat if you're from Buffalo, I presume brats and other things. And they are ready to hunker down. For, uh, for this weekend. So then, when they hear the knock on the door, what do they do? Well, they answer it. And what do they see? Two snow-covered strangers who ask to borrow a shovel, as if that's gonna do a whole lot of good in a blizzard. Well, what happens next makes international news. Alex and Andrea say, Come in. And these two very cold men respond, and I imagine uh, with teeth chattering, it's not just us. We're a group of 10. And again, Alex and Andrea say, come on in. And so they do. They all do. 10 Korean tourists march into the humble home, three-bedroom home of Alex and Andrea Campagna. And first, they, they show the guests where the restrooms are. 
And then they invite their guests to take off their wet jackets and their wet socks. And then they begin pulling out blankets and sleeping bags and air mattresses. You're all spending the night, they say. And then they begin to cook. And it just so happens that Alex and Andrea have these condiments uh, in the pantry. Mirin, soy sauce, sesame oil, chili flakes, Korean red pepper paste. You see, Andrea and Alex of Buffalo, New York, happen to have a passion for Korean cooking. You could not make this up. In fact, their first date had been to a Korean restaurant. Well, over the next two days, this group of new friends uh, spends time getting to know each other, playing board games, watching the Buffalo Bills, and sharing Korean meals that the whole group prepped together, all while the blizzard roars outside. And after the weekend, one of the guests, a guy named Mr. Choi, said to a reporter who had picked up on this story, that his hosts were the kindest people he had ever met. It's a great story. And it got me thinking, again, I haven't stopped thinking about it. How does someone become a someone like Alex or Andrea Campagna? Someone whose reflex is to love. Because that's really what makes a life a life. You know, being a pastor and attending a lot of memorial service, I see this so clearly. And I'm not telling you anything you don't know. It's not money or it's not status or it's not a dream house that makes a life. It's love that makes a life. And especially when that love is hard, when it's inconvenient, when it costs us something. Well, the little passage that we arrive at this morning in our series from 1 John, it contains a lot. It's only like six verses. We're not gonna exhaust it. But among its treasures is wisdom for becoming the kind of person whose reflex is to love. The kind of person who opens the door when the opportunity to love knocks. That's what this passage is about. We've got our students here with us this morning. Did you notice that? Are you happy the students are with us here out all together? I am too. Elise Garcia is gonna come and she's gonna read our passage for us and then, uh, then we're gonna walk through it. Good to see you again. 1 John 2, uh, verses 28 to chapter 3. And now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. See what kind of love the Father has given us, that we should be called the children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world doesn't know him know us is that it did not know him beloved we are god's children now and what we will be has not yet appeared but we know that when he appears we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is and everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure 
Man. Thank you, Elise. Yeah. So let's walk through it. Verse 28, uh, John tells the Christians that he's writing to, and he tells us today, because he still speaks today, to abide in Jesus. And John is, is quoting the Lord himself. And as Wayne reminded us last week, Jesus calls us to abide in him. That's John chapter 15. And he says, it's critical that we abide because only by abiding in Jesus, our Lord, can we produce anything good, anything that really lasts. And that leads to the question, well, what does that really mean? How is it that we abide in Jesus? And here's what it means. It means living every day in the closest possible connection with him, the king, the one who is our personal friend. And abiding means bringing Jesus to mind, to, to recognizing over and over again his nearness. It means talking to him. It means expressing our thoughts and feelings to him. It means bringing the challenges that we're experiencing to him. And then it also means listening to him because he's present and he speaks back. And abiding in Jesus requires something that is harder and harder to get in the world that we live in today. It requires quiet. It, it requires unplugging. It requires what one writer has called tech subtraction. And what's more, abiding in Jesus, the living word, it requires, or it means experiencing Jesus in his written word, the Bible. In 831, Jesus says, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. And to abide deeply in the Bible is to abide deeply in Jesus. Last week, uh, I was having coffee with my friend, Mark Keller, who's there. And if you don't know who Mark Keller is, everybody should know who Mark Keller is. Wave your hand. That's Mark Keller. What a really fine, fine man. And Mark and I were talking about the spiritual practices that have really shaped us. It's a wonderful conversation. And both of us agreed that at the very top of the list, very top of the practices that have you know, formed our love for Jesus is just daily time in God's word, daily time thinking about scripture. When I was a college student back at UC Davis, many days I would ride uh, my black Schwinn beach cruiser to uh, the Arboretum. I don't know if there are any Aggies here in our gathering. Yeah, but if you're, there's an Aggie back there, you know the, the Arboretum is an idyllic spot. It's this mile-long creekside pathway with trees and gardens. It's really a beautiful spot. And after getting there and plunking down in my favorite place, I would pull out my paperback Bible, which I think was a Bible I stole from my high school group back in Santa Cruz. And I would begin to read it. And I would read it in large chunks, trying to get kind of the big sense of what it was talking about. And over time, this is really true. Over time, the big story that the Bible tells, which is a story about the creator, 
And that creator's dream to be at home with his people, and then the climactic story of Jesus within that big story, it started to form me. It started to really change me. And I know now, I can say this with real confidence, that any reflex that I have now to love, and it's weak and undeveloped, because I have a lot of work to do, but any reflex I have to love, it was forged there. Almost more important than any sermon I've ever heard, though I hope you're listening to this one, okay? <laughs> you know, we never graduate from daily time in God's Word. We never graduate from making time every day to talk with Jesus. And as Mark Keller put it last week over Pete's dark roast, daily scripture and prayer, he said, it's the blocking and the tackling of the Christian life. I loved it. Mike Downing's a football coach. He will appreciate that metaphor. Second half of verse 28, John tells us why we should abide in him. He says, why is this so important? Listen to the verse again. He says, and now little children abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. You know, this is actually not what we're expecting to hear. This is not the kind of verse that we typically inscribe on uh, coffee mugs and put on t-shirts, but it's here and we, we should consider it. You know, just like all the New Testament writers, John is saying that Jesus, the world's true Lord, the one who's reigning right now over this world, he's coming back someday. And in fact, Jesus says this himself in the very second to last verse of the Bible. Jesus says, surely I am coming soon. Jesus says it. And when he does, it's going to be awesome. Literally, it's going to create awe in every person. And for people who know him, who have experienced his forgiveness and gotten swept up in his purposes, it's going to be an incredible occasion. It's going to be exhilarating. But the Bible is, not, is also not embarrassed to say, and John says this as well, that the royal appearing of Jesus is not going to be an exhilarating experience for people who aren't his friends, for people who have spurned his friendship. The Bible is not embarrassed to say that the royal appearing of Jesus, the Lord, will be fearsome for everybody but his friends. And that's because he's the king of glory. He's the king, he's the all-powerful one through whom God created the whole world. You know, a major message of the Bible, and you find it all over the place, is this. Live every moment. Every moment the Lord gives you. Live like the king of love and the king of mercy and the king of justice is coming back. Because he is. Keep going. Chapter 3, verse 1, Jesus says something amazing. Listen to this again. Let me read it. He says, see what kind of love the Father has given us that we should be called children of God. This phrase here, what kind of, uh, is translated uh, in the Gospel of Mark, wonderful. Just with the word wonderful. So John is asking us to consider the wonder 
the mind-blowing love that God has shown us in making each of us who know him by faith his children and being his children, belonging to him, it means something incredible. It means that we never have to wonder who we are. We can know who we are. We can have stable identities. We are either women or men made in his image in love, handcrafted, made for relationship with him, to know him, made for relationship with one another and made to do all sorts of creative things and creative service for this world. And of course, being his children, it has implications for all of us. It means we're brothers and sisters. We're not strangers to each other. We belong to each other. And that means that we have the privilege of showing all the loyalty, all the commitment, and sometimes even the long sufferingness that goes along with having siblings. We're a family. Check out the second half of verse one. John says something kind of funny here. I think this is funny. He says, because we belong to Jesus, the eternal son, and because we try to make Jesus's way of life our pattern, even though none of us do it perfectly, he says, actually, we're a little strange. We're a little odd. And as the world was puzzled by him, sometimes the world will be puzzled by us. And you can put it this way. In this sense, we're a little bit like Aragorn from Lord of the Rings. Any Middle Earth fans? Here, Becky, Jonathan, anyone speak Elvish? Do you? I'm still working on it. Duolingo. But if you know the book, you know that although it's obscured in the movie, early in the novel, Aragorn, who turns out to be the great king, is viewed with great suspicion by the Shire folk. They don't trust him. He, he looks, uh, looks kind of shifty, and they don't know what to make of him, even though what is he doing? He's protecting them. He's, he's, he's going around the borders of the Shire and keeping all the not-so things out. Well, what's the point? We Christians are Aragorns in our own way. We're protectors. We're caretakers. We're guardians. We look after the weak, even if sometimes we're misunderstood. And I was thinking about this this past week, and I want to try it out on you. You know, I think one question that we can ask, if we want to determine whether we're really in Christ, which is one of the themes in 1 John, and the question is this, are we a little weird? We ask that question. Or you can put it this way, are we a little like the four people who Allison and I spied on two Thursdays back at Coldstone. Let me explain. <laughs> two Thursdays back, the boys are at youth group and we head to Coldstone in downtown Pleasant Hill trying to make it uh, a little weekly date. And we split a founder's favorite. And this is a freebie. If you've not had a founder's favorite, get a founder's favorite, a truly magnificent dessert. But anyway, just outside of the front doors are these two couples and they're standing and talking uh, on the sidewalk. And I have about 15 seconds or so to kind of uh, spot them before we turn into uh, Coldstone. And just as we walk in the doors, I say to Allison, Christians, 
They're Christians. They're obviously Christians. Something about the love, something about the looks on their faces, something about their joy, something about the way they were laughing. And so we get our founder's favorite, and then we go out and we sit out on the bench uh, right in front of Colts. There's only one bench there. And even though this, this foursome is only 15 feet away, I begin to stare. And I don't stop there. I begin to eavesdrop because I want to confirm my uh, hunch. Well, they finish their conversation at almost the exact moment when we finish our shared founder's favorite. And as they pass by, I say in a very loud and obnoxious voice, who are you wonderful people? Just like that. And they come over. They've already got smiles on their faces. They've already got their hands out to shake our hands. Turns out they are pastors Joe and Tina Skiles from New Hope Church in Concord. <laughs> I'd never met them, though I'd heard of them. We told them we were hillsiders. It's joyful. I said, I knew it. Christians are different. In the same way that Jesus was different, we're a little weird, but we're only weird for the world's benefit. And if our weirdness doesn't make the world better, then we got to fix up our weird, okay? Brings us to the last two verses, and something pretty remarkable. Listen to them again. John says, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Here John says that even though now we belong to Jesus, we are his children, we aren't now what we will be in the future. But when that glorious king who is also the second person of the eternal trinity, appears, we are going to look upon him, John says, and then in a nanosecond, we're going to experience the completion of our transformative journeys. The Christian life is a journey of with his people becoming more and more like Jesus. And that the future would hold this moment when we look at the king, and boom, we become like him when he appears. It makes sense because in 2 Corinthians 3.18, Paul says that we become like Jesus right now. Right now, when we gaze upon him, when we bring him to mind, we think about him, when we visualize his life, when we adore him and worship like we've been doing this morning, we start to become like him. And that's why constantly going back to the Gospels, constantly going back to the stories of Jesus, what he said, what he did, who he healed, and in the manner in which he did it is so critical for us as disciples. And this is also a powerful way we can share Jesus with spiritually curious people as the ambassadors that we are, because that's who we are. We can say to people with whom we've developed a relationship and built some trust, we can say, hey, would you be interested in reading a Jesus biography with me? Because there's really no better way to share the gospel with people than to read the gospel with people. 
But here's the larger point. It makes sense that when we seek in Jesus face to face, which we will do confidently because we love him and we know his love and, and, and we're abiding now, that transformation process will come to completion. And this should encourage us. And I tell you, it encourages me because change is often very slow, isn't it? And we all have enduring struggles, me more than anyone. Finally, verse three, John says that everyone who has this hope that someday she or he will be like Jesus himself, fully restored in God's image. That person joyfully participates in the transformation process now. We lean into it. Well, how do we do it? I want to share a practice with you. It's called the, the prayer of examine, and it's a Christian practice that goes back centuries. It's rooted in Psalm 139, verses 23 and 24. And examine, kind of a fancy word, but it comes from the Latin word for weight indicator on a, on a balance scale. And so it conveys the idea of an accurate assessment of a situation. And when we engage in the prayer of examine, you know what happens? We get a gauge on who we really are. We grow in self-knowledge, which is indispensable in growing in Christ, and it's indispensable in having healthy relationships. The prayer of examine is pretty simple. It involves two questions. The first one is this. It's the experience question. And here's what we do when we practice this. We take time to consider, to reflect upon the day. And we ask, where has God been at work around us? Where has he moved close, tried to get our attention? One Christian writer puts it this way, very interesting. He says, we consider whether the boisterous neighbor of last night was more than just a rude interruption. Maybe just maybe he was the voice of God urging us to be attentive to the pain and the loneliness of those around us. Perhaps in the glorious sunrise of this morning, God was shouting out to us his love and his mercy. Maybe we responded to the divine whisper to text a friend. And the results of that simple kindness were nothing short of startling. So that's the first step in this simple practice, the prayer of examine. We consider our own experience. We ask, what happened? What happened this day? Where did God get our attention? What was God's spirit trying to do? And how did we respond? And then the second part of the practice of examine is the conscience question. And here we invite the Lord who loves us to do something critical, to reveal to us what is inside us. What is there? that he wants to unveil for us. And here we pray like the psalmist of Psalm 139, search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. And here we ask the Holy Spirit to reveal who we are, our deep patterns of anxiety, pride, lust, unforgiveness, anger, resentment, whatever it might be. And we ask God's spirit to unearth it, 
to bring it to our awareness so that we can put them off and then we can put on Jesus in their place. And you know what we can do if we belong to Jesus? We can pray this prayer. We can pray the search me prayer with absolute confidence because you know who it's directed to? The Lord who loves us. The Lord who died for us, who adores us and who is pleased when we draw near him and say, shape me. I want to be more like you. You know, Wayne and I were chatting about this sermon and this practice this week. And Wayne had a great idea. He said, we should do it in the service. Lead us right in the service. And I thought, what a great idea. So let's close. We're going to do it together. Close your eyes if you, if you feel comfortable, if it would help. Let's ask the Holy Spirit in these last couple of minutes, where have you been at work? Maybe you just think about this morning. Just ask Spirit, where have you tried to get my attention just this morning? You know, was it in something somebody said? Was it an unexpected kindness? Was it an opportunity to do good or to extend mercy? And if the Spirit brings something to mind, write it down. Just take 30 seconds. Just reflect on that. Spirit, where have you tried to get my attention? 30 seconds. And that brings us to our second question. This is the conscience question. And we ask the Holy Spirit, what, what do you want to reveal in me? What about me do you want to show me? Maybe it is a habit that is disrupting a key relationship. Maybe it is a mindless routine we do without thinking that's actually strangling our joy. Maybe it's resentment or unforgiveness to somebody who has wounded us. And it's corrosive. Again, if the Holy Spirit brings something to mind, write it down. Holy Spirit, what about us do you want to reveal? Let's pray that together. Let's take 30 seconds to listen. It's a simple prayer practice for living out verse 3. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. We've got a family picnic to get to. Very quickly, we launched today with a story about a couple who, when the opportunity to love knocked, they opened it. And maybe you're wondering, well, what brought this to mind? This was months ago. Last week, it was reported that Alex and Andrea Campagna just returned from a trip to Korea. You see, in appreciation, 
for the treatment that they gave their citizens. The Korean government invited them for a 10-day, all-expenses-paid tour of the country. Ten days of being wined and dined and shown the beautiful sights of a beautiful country. And best of all, they got to see their guests again. This time, their guests as their hosts. It's been covered, and it was said that there were extraordinary smiles, and there were many tears as they connected. And when I heard the postscript to the story, you know, I thought to myself, that's our future too. According to scripture, that's the future of a life of love lived in Christ. Reunions, banquets, honor. And that's why now's the time to lean into the Lord's shaping. Because that purification empowers love. It equips us to love, to be more like Jesus, to love reflexively, and to be ready to answer the knock on the door. Let's pray together. Father, we're grateful. We're awed by the love you have shown us in making us your children. And Father, as we eat together now and we play together, try to stay warm together, help us to see each other as the brothers and sisters we are. And as we abide in you together, make this family more and more one whose reflex is to love, love like your son. And we pray this in his name, our King. Amen.